welcome. Please accept Jim and John's invitation to join them as they once again ask each other, what do you think about? Hey, John, what do you think about instances of plagiarism in the Bible? Well, Jim, I know that not all the stories in the Bible are exactly original stories, right? I don't know what I would call them plagiarism, though. I mean, a lot of them are just traditional and not attributed to anyone. Well, it seems to be true. Some of the stories that are contained within the Old Testament were actually lifted from earlier non-Judaic sources, almost word for word in some cases. The trend seems to have possibly bled into the New Testament also. Now, before anyone blows a gasket and accuses me of heresy and turns off the podcast, let me say this. I'm not trying to be cute or sacrilegious or outrageous. I'm simply going to be presenting facts that I have found. If your faith isn't strong enough to withstand a good going over every once in a while, then I'd question its depth anyway. It shouldn't be a fragile curio that's kept high on a shelf where it can't be handled. It should be a tool or a guide that's used daily. I concur. Yep. Now, enough of the preaching. Let's get on with the teaching. In times past, many people thought, and this still may be the belief in some churches yet today, the first five books of the Old Testament, also known as the Pentateuch, were committed to scroll by Moses himself somewhere between 1440 to 1400 BCE. And if my feeble memory serves me, that was the message taught by the church of my childhood. And my family attended the United Church of Christ, which is a pretty progressive sect. How about you, John? What was your uh, religious experience growing up? We were Roman Catholic, and I went to parochial schools. And I clearly remember being taught that the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, were the same between the Christian Bible and the Jewish Torah, and that they were written by Moses. So we have the same baseline, at least. Mm -hmm. Those people who still adhere to the line of thinking about Moses being the sole author of those first five books may want to reconsider, though. Scholars now believe these writings came about at various times, ranging from the 10th century BCE clear up to the 6th century BCE. So where does this idea of a sole author come from? It seems that the writers themselves sowed these seeds, hoping to lend greater credibility to their own works. Here are a few examples of these attempts. Exodus 7.14, the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book. Numbers 33.2, And Moses wrote their goings out according to their journeys by the commandment of the Lord. And Deuteronomy 31.9, And Moses wrote this law and delivered it under the priests and the sons of Levi. Right. And then was Moses referring to himself in third person all the time? I would think not. It would be I through the whole thing. Exactly. In reality, rather than one old guy who had it in good with God, there were at least four schools of theology whose writings were cut and pasted to make the book that we now know as Genesis. These schools are as follows. The Yahwist or the J source, J being from Jehovah. This is concerned mostly with uh, the relationship between humans and the soil and the separations of human and God 
as well as progressive human corruption. Next is the Elohist. This is most concerned with the abstract view of God. He's not some hippie-looking old dude strolling through the garden and hanging out with Adam and Eve and the animals. He's more ephemeral than that. And if there's stuff to be done, he's got his angels to take care of that shit. Yeah, exactly. That's why they're there. The priestly source deals with, believe it or not, priestly matters such as ritual law, the origins of shrines and rituals, and genealogies. And then lastly, we have the Deuteronomist source, which is primarily concerned with exhorting the peoples of Israel to follow God's laws. It's kind of like the nagging spouse who constantly reminds you that you've got things to do around the house other than working on a freaking podcast. Yep. Got to get ready to move. You've got to get ready. Were you aware of these sources? Did they discuss that at all? Uh, they, they did later in high school. I don't recall it ever coming up in my church for all of its supposedly, uh, you know, forward thinking. Did you go to Bible study? Uh well, we would go to Sunday school. Mom forced us until we were uh, confirmed members of the church. And then she left it up to us whether or not we were going to attend. So we did Sunday school and then we did the after Sunday school church sermon. But no particular Bible study? Uh, no, no. These four sources, in turn, were most likely gathered from non-Hebraic religious texts. And just what were those sources? That's where we're headed next. Let's begin at the beginning of everything, the creation epics. The Enuma Elish is the Babylonian creation epic. The origin date's unknown, but other existing writings allude to a version that dated earlier than the fall of Sumer, which happened in 1750 BCE. And when it's compared side by side with the Bible, we can see that the two texts are reminiscent of each other. Both recount how the world was created out of a void. Both share similar accounts of the creation of celestial bodies, seasons, and years. In the Enuma Elish, man is created in the sixth tablet. In the Bible, man is created on the sixth day. And that may be coincidence, though. A couple of the verses that look to be plagiarized are the following. From the Enuma Elish, when the heavens above did not exist, and the earth beneath had not come into being. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth, and the earth was without form and void. Tablet 5 of the Enuma Elish, the God set up constellations and the patterns of stars. And in the Bible, let there be lights in the firmament of heaven. He appointed the year, marked off divisions, and set up three stars each for the 12 months. So the Enuma Elish says, and the Bible says the stars were created to divide the day from the night and to let them be signs and for seasons and for days and for years. So not exactly word for word, but wouldn't you agree the ideas behind them are similar? Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, the people who wrote this lived in a part of the world, right? And they have interactions with people from other cultures and there's historical stories that they've learned over the years and things. I mean... It's all the same part of the world. So, John, do you happen to recall just why man is mortal and doomed to die? Yeah, because Eve tempted him to eat the apple. There is a parallel with that in the Enuma Elish. In both versions, food is what caused our mortality. 
In the Bible, the curse of mortality is bestowed upon humans because a forbidden fruit is eaten at the encouragement of an evil entity. Yeah, and Eve listened to him. It's Eve's fault. Completely and totally Eve's fault. Yeah. Uh, send your comments to John Gordos, care of W-D-O-U-T-A at gmail.com. In the Enuma Elish... Man becomes mortal by refraining from eating at the advice of a devious god. So he was mortal, and if he had eaten it, he would have been immortal? Exactly. And this god didn't want competition from humans, so he said, well, I'll tell you what he said. First, we'll do a quick recap of the Bible story. God puts Adam in the Garden of Eden. It says, of every tree in the garden, thou may eat freely, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Thou shalt not eat, for in the day thou eatest of it, thou shalt surely die. And after this uh, unspecified amount of time passes, the serpent comes up to Eve and he says, God told you you could eat anything here, right? And Eve replies, yep, except for that tree in the middle of the garden. If we eat its fruit or even touch it, we'll die. And the serpent says, come on, do you believe that? You won't die. You'll become as gods, knowing good and evil. So she takes some. Then she gave Adam some. And then she nagged him and nagged him and nagged him to eat it. And he ate it too. Then God comes to visit and freaks out thinking, oh shit, man's become one of us. We got to do something before he eats from that other tree and lives forever. So he served him an eviction notice. The second tablet of the Enuma Elish has this tale. Adapa, an early man, was fishing. But a strong gust of wind knocks him into the water, so he got mad, and he broke the wind's wings. Anu, the sky god, found out, and he called Adapa up to heaven to answer WTF. Before Adapa leaves, the god Ea offers some shitty advice. He says, no matter what happens, don't eat the heavenly food. They're going to put stuff in front of you. Don't eat it. They're going to give you something to drink. Don't drink it. Adapa says, okay. He goes to heaven. When they offer him the stuff, he turns it all down. And uh, Anu then is confused. And he says, uh, why haven't you eaten? Now thou shalt not live forever. And I bet he just thought to himself, that son of a bitch. Yeah. So there you have different circumstances, same reasoning, and food causing the same outcome. Every man and woman will eventually die. The similarities here, granted, are few, and overall, the two epics vary greatly in detail and in theme. But the similarities do make you wonder whether one did influence the minds of the later writers. And since current evidence puts the Enuma Elish as being the elder book, it would have been the one that was copied or the one that provided the inspiration, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as we discussed, you know, the people living in that area, you know, the early Israelites or whomever they may be, they traded with other tribes. They weren't the only people. And so there would have been cultural bleed over. Exactly. Not only traded goods, but stories and uh, and and beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Because you hang out, right? Right. Yep. It all merges together. Now, from the creation, let's move on to the first global disaster, the deluge. It's a staple of nearly everyone's early Sunday school lessons, the tale of Noah and the Ark. But it's also a prime example of how earlier religious texts were plagiarized by biblical writers. 
As I mentioned earlier, it's theorized that the book of Genesis was written down around 1450 to 1400 BCE. But even earlier than that, in approximately 2000 BCE, the Gilgamesh, which is a piece of Sumerian epic poetry, was written. And it's obviously the source material for the biblical flood story. And let me explain why. Genesis 6 to 9 relates the flood portion of Noah's life. A quick synopsis of the biblical story is this. The wickedness and evilness of man grieves God so much that he decides to destroy all mankind. Noah, however, has made his way into God's good graces. So he's given a forewarning by God that, hey, this flood's coming and you need to build an ark that's 300 cubits long and 50 cubits wide and 50 cubits high. And it needs a window and a door and three decks. God then gives Noah instructions as to how many of each animal to bring on board. And while you're at it, go ahead and bring your family along too. Let's take a second here to play a quick game. You listeners at home can play too. John, how many animals did Noah take on the ark? All the animals, Jim, at least two of them of every kind, right? That's what we were taught when we were little. Agreed. That is what we were taught when we were little. But if you're sticking with two of each, I hate it for you because you're only partially correct. While it's true that Genesis 6.19 claims, and of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shall be brought into the ark, and they shall be male and female. Then Genesis 7.2, of every clean animal thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and female, and of the beasts that are not clean by two, the male and the female. So we've got a discrepancy here. Did he take two of every kind or did he take seven of every clean animal and a pair of every unclean animal? And the reason we have this discrepancy between the two chapters goes back to those four classes of thought that I spoke of earlier. The Yahwist, Elihist, Deuteronomist, and Priestly. The deluge pours forth, rains for 40 days, 40 nights. After 150 days pass, the waters recede. The ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. After 40 days of sitting around, Noah gets up and lets a raven and a dove fly off. The raven flies to and fro until the waters are dried up, but the dove, not finding a place to land, returns to the ark. Seven days later, Noah sends forth the dove again. This time it returned with an olive leaf in its beak. So he knew that plants were returning and uh, soon they would be able to disembark. He waited another week, sent out the dove. This time it didn't return. So everybody exited en masse out of the ark. Noah then constructed an altar and made a sacrifice of every clean fowl and clean animal to the Lord for the safe passage. God smelled the sacrifice and promised never again to curse the ground for man's sake, and neither will he smite every living creature as he had done. Now the Gilgamesh tells the story of how Utnapishtim was saved from a devastating flood sent by the gods. Here's his story. The god Enlil became pissy because his sleep was being disturbed by the incessant noise generated by humans on earth. Instead of just telling him to knock it off, Enlil decides to send a flood to kill all humanity. He's a god, so he can make more, right? Yeah, absolutely. Just, just whip up another couple people. Now, not all of the gods think a wholesale destruction of mankind is justified. So Ea, yeah, that same prick that screwed Adapa a little while earlier, tips off Uknapishtim, telling him, 
tear down the house and build a boat. Make all living beings go up into the boat. The boat which you are to build, its dimensions must measure equal to each other. The length must correspond to the width. So it's a square. His boat is a square rather than a rectangle. Yeah. The story goes on. Ia tells him the walls were to be 10 times 12 cubits in height. The sides of its top were to be of equal length. It had six decks. And inside, Upnapishtim divided it into nine compartments. All the living things that he had, he loaded into it. And he had all of his kith and kin go into the boat. And all the beasts and animals of the field and the craftsmen were also taken in. So he saved more than just his family. He took quite a few people along with the animals. The rains came. They poured down for six days and six nights instead of 40 days and 40 nights. Yeah, well, it was a harder rain. The boat came to rest on Mount Nisir, and after it had been aground for seven days, Upnapishtim sent forth a dove, and the dove returned because it found no perch. Then he released a swallow. It returned because it found no perch, and then he sent forth a raven. The raven didn't return, so they knew it had somewhere to land, so it was safe to leave the boat. Thankful. He offered animal and incense sacrifices to the gods. Now, doesn't this story sound a lot like the biblical version that came at least 600 years later? Yeah, it absolutely does. It was interesting to me, too, that uh, Una Pishtim, he uh, loaded Hith and Ken, right? Yes. So Noah just brought his family. Right, yeah. And, and for people that may not know, Kith is friends and Ken is your family. I get that this is a parallel story to what was going on in the, I get it. it. There's a direct parallel between the two flood stories, but I think other cultures had flood stories too. Almost every culture, the American Indians have, yep. uh, Egyptians have, yep. the, the ancient Greeks had, um, oh shoot. I used to know the name of their Noah and I can't think of it, but yeah, it, it's almost a universal story. So maybe it really happened. Or some huge flood happened somewhere, right? Yeah. Something like that, right? Yeah, a tsunami or something, right? And another similarity that we find in Upnapishtim's story goes back to humanity's loss of uh, immortality, or at least one man's loss of immortality. The whole reason Gilgamesh went to see this Upnapishtim guy was not to hear the flood story. That was just kind of a uh, plus, if uh, you consider an old man droning on a plus. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it was to learn the secret of his immortality. But rather than just give away such a cool secret, Upnapishtim proposed a little test that Gilgamesh had to pass first. If Gilgamesh believes that he should live for all eternity, he should be able to stay awake for one full week. Gilgamesh agrees to the test, but he fails, so Upnapishtim tells him to hit the road. But before he leaves, Upnapishtim's wife convinces him to tell Gilgamesh about this youth-restoring plant. So while he doesn't have immortality, he'll at least gain years. I'd be all over that plant. Gilgamesh was too, because he went out, located it, dug it up, and he planned to take it home and, and share with the elders. But a serpent comes in the night and steals the plant. As it slithers away, it shed its skin and became young again, using the plant up. The miraculous plant calls to mind the tree of life in Genesis 3. And 
we have a crafty serpent meddling in human affairs and jacking shit up for us. Yep. Don't listen to any serpent that talks to you. This flood story is so hot. Like you said, other cultures have it. The Egyptians ripped it off and their version was written down way before the biblical version. It goes like this. People had become rebellious against the gods. The god Etum decided to destroy all of his creation, returning earth to Nun, the primordial water of chaos. And he will remain in the serpent form along with Osiris. That's about all that, that's left because the copy we have is damaged and the remainder is illegible. But guess what? We got another serpent and we got another flood story. And if the Hebrews truly spent all those years in bondage in Egypt, they probably heard this story and picked it up and worked it to their own needs. Absolutely. Let's take a break here. You all at home can contemplate the show so far. And please indulge us for a minute while we tell you about Anchor Podcasting. And we're back. John, pop quiz. Do you know the name of the oldest written code of law known to us today? Uh, was it Hammurabi? Oh, that's one of the oldest. But the oldest we know of was the Mesopotamian Code of Ur-Namu. I have never heard of Ur-Namu. He was a king back in the day. And what's cool about his code is it shares some of the same ideals as the biblical Ten Commandments. Upon the tablets that we have, we find the following. If a man commits murder, he must be killed. If a man commits robbery, he will be killed. If a man accuses his wife of adultery and the river ordeal proved her innocent, then the man who accused her must pay one-third of a mina of silver. So here we have edicts against murder, theft, and adultery. Of course, statutes against murder and theft seem to be universal, so there's little surprise that these codes exist in both. Don't you agree? Yeah, they seem to be pretty um, universal. The whole don't kill people, don't steal from them. Because really, if you think about it, you can't have a civilization if people are always killing and stealing from the guy next door. Right, because then you get pissed and you kill him. Yeah, and then, you know, stealing wives, the whole thing. Yeah, you can't be having that. Another example of plagiarism in the Ten Commandments and other parts of Mosaic Law comes from a comparison with the Code of Hammurabi, which you did mention. And in case the audience isn't familiar, the Big Ten are found in Exodus 20, 1 through 17, as well as in Deuteronomy 5, 6 through 17. And then other laws are found throughout the Pentateuch. Just a bit about Hammurabi. He was the 6th century king in the first Babylonian dynasty. His reign lasted about 1792 to 1750 BCE. He took the throne upon the abdication of his sick father. His greatest act was probably creating the code of laws that bear his name. Now we'll get to comparisons. But before we do, please note, I'm not saying that Mosaic Law is a word-for-word -word copy of the Code of Hammurabi. It's my contention that the concepts and intent of some Mosaic Laws originated with the Code of Hammurabi. They both have statutes against theft. However, the punishment is much more harsh in the Code of Hammurabi. The Bible just says, thou shalt not steal. If 
a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sell it, he has to pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Now, the Code of Hammurabi says, if anyone steals the property of the temple or the court, he shall be put to death. Also, the one who receives the stolen thing shall be put to death. If anyone breaks into a house, he shall be put to death before the hole that he crawled through and be buried outside of that house beneath the window that he crawled through to get into the house. And that is kind of freaky. Um, yeah. So, yeah, don't do that. Another of the cornerstone laws of, of society, you're not supposed to kill people. The Bible says, thou shalt not kill. It also says, anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. The Code of Hammurabi says, if the wife of one man on the account of another man has their mates, that is her husband and her lover's wife, murdered, both of them shall be impaled. It is interesting, though, that, you know, they're very black and white. Thou shalt not kill. Anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall be surely put to death, unless we're at war with those guys. Bearing false witness is mentioned in both statutes. The Bible says, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. It also says the judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. The Code of Hammurabi says if anyone bring an accusation against a man and the accused go to the river and leap into the river, if he sinks in the river, his accuser shall take possession of his house. But if the river proves that the accused man is not guilty and he escapes unhurt, then he who has brought the accusation shall be put to death, while he who leaped into the river shall take possession of the house that belonged to his accuser. So clearly... It's to your advantage to be a strong swimmer at this time. You know, I always thought that the uh, test of witches by throwing them into the water was a Christian thing, but it sounds like it came from Hammurabi. Not that uh, this particular instance involves witchcraft, but it is the same idea of a trial through the ordeal of drowning to determine one's guilt or innocence. It does sound like that, doesn't it? really does. Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery. It also says, do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. And it goes on to say, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Again, don't do that. We strongly recommend against it. Kota Hammurabi says, if a man's wife be surprised in flagrante delecto, oh yeah, which is in blazing offense, i.e. doing it, with another man, both shall be tied and thrown into the water. So again, swim. But the husband may pardon the wife and the king may pardon his slaves. Man, there must have been a lot of rivers around back then. Now, the Bible says, if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, 
burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Code of Hammurabi says, if a man put out the eye of another man, his eye shall be put out. If he break another man's bone, his bone shall be broken. Clearly a parallel here. Yes. Other acts that are forbidden by both sets of laws include kidnapping, incest, killing a pregnant woman, striking one's father, and inability to repay the cost of stolen property. But that's about enough of that, if not too much already. I mean, two sets of laws telling us that we can't do anything fun. Who needs that? In view of these examples, it does seem evident that the Code of Hammurabi did, at the very least, influence parts of Mosaic Law. And the mere proximity of the two cultures, even though they were separated by centuries, certainly facilitates the elder set of rules impact upon the younger. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Now, literary piracy is not confined solely to the Old Testament. The very core of Christianity, the Jesus Christ mythos, also seems to have elements that were borrowed from neighboring cultures. Take these notes, for example. A child was conceived without a living father. Upon becoming pregnant, the child's mother had to flee with him in order to prevent his being murdered by the king. The child, by the way, was the only begotten son of a god. So, John, if I asked you, who does this narrative describe, how would you answer? Clearly, I would answer Jesus. And I probably would have, too. But in this specific instance, all of these are part of the myth of Horus, which is about 2,000 years older than the Christian nativity. Granted, the vast majority of the Horus myth has no analog whatsoever with the story of Jesus. But there is a small seed there, and from acorns grow mighty oaks. Yes, sir. Another facet of Christ that is repeated in many earlier religions is the resurrection. Here are some pre-Christian examples of resurrection deities. Talmuz was an ancient Mesopotamian god associated with shepherds. Oddly enough, Christ was associated with shepherds. Talmuz was associated with fertility and vegetation. The hot, dry summers of Mesopotamia were believed to be caused by his yearly death, which came about as follows. And Anna, the wife of Tammuz descended into the underworld to usurp her sister, but ends up enraging the underworld judges who order her death. And Anna is magically restored to life, and she's allowed to leave the underworld, but her absence must be filled by another. When she gets back home, she finds out that her husband, Tammuz, didn't even mourn her death. So she gets pissed off and tells the demons that came with her from the underworld to take him back as a replacement. After a little while, she has a change of heart and decrees that he only has to spend half of the year in the underworld. So he's born and then he dies in an annual cycle. The worship of Talmud spread to Greece, where he was known as Adonis. And he was also known in the Jewish culture because he's mentioned in Ezekiel 8.14, where there are a bunch of women crying outside of his temple. And then Osiris was an ancient Egyptian god of fertility, the afterlife, the dead, resurrection, life, and vegetation. He was a busy god. He was once a king of Egypt and the husband of the goddess Isis, 
consumed by jealousy for Osiris's rule, Set, who was his brother, by the way, killed him and tore his corpse into 14 pieces, which he cast away. Isis found all four pieces except for his palace. What? And was able to... <laughs> what? Uh, and was able to grant her husband temporary life, uh, which they used to impregnate Isis with their son, Horus. Wait, 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 wait. With which phallus? He had no phallus. Yeah. So I don't know how that. they did that. That's uh, hmm, interesting. And after her spell wore off, he died again and went to the underworld. But he got a gig as its ruler and judge. So it worked out for him. No, he doesn't have a phallus. I, no, it did not work out. Lastly, we have Christ and Krishna. The connection between these two was first brought to my awareness during my first trip to New Vrindavan, the Hare Krishna settlement in West Virginia. I remember being given a book entitled Christ and Krishna or something like that. The book outlined similarities between these two avatars. And here are some of those comparisons. Jesus was a human incarnation of the Holy Trinity. He was born via immaculate conception. In Luke 1, 35, the Bible says, The Holy Spirit will come on you, you being Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then in Matthew 1, verse 20, it says, what is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. Jesus was threatened with death after his birth. The wise men came searching for him. And when King Herod learned of their search, he spoke with his priests and scribes to learn the location of Jesus's nativity. Herod then called the wise men before him and asked that when they find the child, they let him know where he was born. However, they saw through his plans and did not do so. And when Herod learned that the wise men had betrayed him, he ordered the deaths of all children in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under. Jesus spent a life in exile. Joseph, Jesus' father, fled to Egypt with Mary and Jesus after having been warned by an angel that Herod was going to attempt to murder the child. Jesus performed miracles and cast out demons. He underwent a transfiguration that was described as this in Matthew 17:2. And Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Mark 9:2 describes the transfiguration as and Jesus' raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow. And finally, Luke 9, verse 29 says, And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistening. And he died. Krishna was an avatar, which means the human incarnation of the Hindu trinity. He was born via immaculate conception. Of his conception, it was said that Vishnu's compassion for creation drove him to descend into Devaki's womb to become Krishna. He was threatened with death after birth. Kamsa, the brother of Devaki, Krishna's mother, was told by fortune tellers that a child of his sister would kill him. So Kamsa orders the death of all of Devaki's children. Not unlike Herod, ordering the death of all the children two years old and younger. 
Krishna had to live a life in exile so he could get away from his uncle. Krishna performed miracles and battled demons. Krishna underwent a transfiguration similar to Jesus. In chapter 11 of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna reveals his divine self to Arjuna in verses 10 through 12. Arjuna saw in that universal form unlimited mouths and unlimited eyes. It was all wondrous. The form was decorated with divine dazzling ornaments and arrayed in many garbs. He was garlanded gloriously. If hundreds of thousands of suns rose up at once into the sky, they might resemble the effulgence of the supreme person in that universal form. And he died too. He was pierced by a hunter's arrow in the heel, kind of like Achilles. Yeah, and Jesus was pierced with the spear. Exactly. There, there's uh, another, uh, another similarity based on their deaths. So what do you think, John? Disregard the theological side and taking the Bible as basically a textbook on living life. Is it an original work or is it rife with plagiarism? I wouldn't go as far as calling it plagiarism because, you know, that's a little strong. But it's absolutely clear that they lifted concepts and ideas from prior cultures, which only makes sense, right? You look, no man is an island. You live in a culture that has influences from other cultures. I, I, it's clear. I think it's absolutely clear, Jim. I'm right there with you. I believe it's obvious that portions of the Bible are, in fact, lifted from or influenced by earlier religious texts. I find it amusing that Christians consider these texts from which the ideas came as pagan. Does all this mean the Bible's a work of fiction? If, if you are a believer, I would say no. It, it simply means that the ideas and stories and ideals are based on earlier documents. And for me, the fact that common germs of theology existed millennia before the composition of the Bible lends more credibility to the precepts. I mean, others have been following those ideas and, and living by them for thousands of years before they came into the Judeo-Christian mythology. And you know, when it comes down to it, a good idea is a good idea, no matter where it comes from. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Steal from the best, learn from the rest. And that's where we'll leave it lie. What do you think about is co-written by John Gordos and Jim Dumermuth. Our theme music is provided by podsummit.com. Thanks to Hunter Dumermuth for production assistance. And as always, a special thanks to you, our listeners. Please take the time to rate our podcast on your favorite listening platform and drop us a line at wdouta at gmail.com or visit our Facebook page, anchor.fm forward slash wdouta for updates on releases. Copyright 2020 by John Gordos and Jim Dewey. What do you think about is co-written by John Dumermuth
God damn it, not again. I am wanting to marry you. 